Welcome to First Do No Harm with Massachusetts Citizens for Life board member and physician, Dr. Mark Rollo. This broadcast will focus on medical ethics from a Catholic perspective and address abortion, physician-assisted suicide, contraception, natural family planning, IVF, healthcare proxy, and other topics. Please be advised that this show may not be appropriate for children under 13. Hello and welcome back to First Do No Harm, a show about medical ethics from a Catholic perspective. I'm Dr. Mark Rollo. Last time I presented part two of my interview with Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse, economics professor, author, and culture warrior. Dr. Morris is the founder of the Ruth Institute, a nonprofit organization founded to expose and address the lies and social destruction created by the sexual revolution over the last 50 years. Her website is ruthinstitute.org. We have been focusing on her most recent book, The Sexual State, How Elite Ideologies Are Destroying Lives and Why the Church Was Right All Along. This book can be purchased at her website, ruthinstitute.org. The elite ideologies to which Dr. Morse refers are the contraception ideology, the divorce ideology, and the gender ideology. Briefly explained, the contraception ideology attempts to decouple sex from having children. As a result, marriage is weakened because the marital relationship becomes more adult-focused rather than child-focused. Marriage is then delayed, or does not occur at all, as more and more couples turn to contraception with abortion as a backup should contraception fail, which it often does. When marriage does occur, adults need an easy way out if their adult-centered relationship no longer makes them happy. They rationalize, kids are resilient, so they will get over any breakup. But it turns out that that is not true. This fact was discovered after a 25-year study conducted by psychologist Dr. Judith Wallerstein, who was previously referenced by Dr. Morse. But by the end of that study, no-fault divorce had already been enshrined in law by the cultural elites. Sex without babies made theoretically possible with contraception evolved into babies without sex via artificial reproductive technologies such as in vitro fertilization. With this third-party reproductive technology, gender became irrelevant. The cultural elites have declared gender to be fluid, and therefore, this modern-day Tower of Babel renders gender to mean anything or nothing. Furthermore, the sterile sex of contraception fueled the rationalization of sterile sex with anyone, regardless of gender. And so, gender ideology was born. Dr. Wallerstein's study, as summarized by Dr. Jeffrey Myris from Princeton University, who we also referenced last time, concluded that children in post-divorce families do not, on the whole, look happier, healthier, or better adjusted, 
even if one or both of the parents are happier. National studies show that children from divorced and remarried families are more aggressive toward their parents and teachers. They experience more depression, have more learning difficulties, and suffer from more problems with peers than children from intact families. More of them end up in mental health clinics and hospital settings. There is earlier sexual activity, children born out of wedlock, less marriage, and more divorce. Numerous studies show that adult children of divorce have more psychological problems than those raised in intact families. Other studies, writes Dr. Myris, show that women whose parents divorced were twice as likely to cohabit before marriage and have an illegitimate child. Women ages 18 to 23 with recently divorced parents experienced more depression and were 50% more likely to say they needed psychological help. Adults who had experienced divorce as children, even before the age of seven, were twice as likely to suffer major depression and commit suicide. Concludes Dr. Myris, young children, adult children, their spouses, and their children, that is, even the grandchildren of divorced parents, suffer grievously from divorce. The myth that we're doing it for the children, that it is better for children to end a troubled marriage rather than work hard to see it through to better times, has indeed been thoroughly debunked. This gives us another way to understand why fidelity is the key to marriage and why the church in marriage tribunal cases, actually appoints someone to defend the marriage bond. It also gives another reason to enter marriage with the attitude that divorce is not an option, and to discuss that commitment up front. Finally, the debunking of the divorce myth provides another reason not to cut and run, another very good reason to work through the bad days. Now, before we continue, let us pray. For as stated by the U.S. Catholic bishops, only with prayer. Prayer that storms the heavens for justice and mercy. Prayer that cleanses our hearts and souls. Will the culture of death that surrounds us today be replaced with a culture of life. Matthew chapter 19 verses 3 to 8 tells us this. Some Pharisees approached Jesus and tested him saying, "Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause whatever?" He said in reply, "Have you not read that from the beginning the creator made them male and female and said for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no human being must separate. 
They said to him, Then why did Moses command that the man give the woman a bill of divorce and dismiss her? He said to them, Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. O God, the hardness of our hearts has broken the hearts of our children, who are torn asunder when parents are not one. Help us to realize that your word is truth, and our words without your word is a confused tower of Babel. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now here's part three of my interview with Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse as she delves further into the three destructive ideologies described in her book, The Sexual State. We also discuss her Manifesto for the Family, a 15-point plan for family justice and the civilization of love that would stop family breakdown. It used to be back in the day uh, when they would look at birth order, Mark. Uh, mm-hmm. Back in the day, people always thought, well, the oldest child has an advantage. The parents, you know, shower uh, attention and so on on the oldest child, and the other kids don't get as much, and you know, there's leadership in the oldest child. Well, that's not true anymore. Now what matters is how long have you had a stable relationship with both of your parents? And so the, the baby of the family, the woman's last child, often does the best because that child has one and only one dad. There's Mm -hmm. one and only one man in in that person's life, and the other children have had a lot of disruption that the youngest child hasn't had, you know. And I think, honestly, for my money, all those social science results that I told you about, um, that children of divorce experience, you know, that children of divorce and single parents and and children with various forms of family breakdown, you know, they do worse in school, they have worse health outcomes, they have psychological problems, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. I think, to me, the core issue is the sense of being rejected, the sense of not belonging, the sense of being unsure who they are. Because um, we tell the child, oh, mommy and daddy still love you. Mm -hmm. We just don't love each other anymore. So we're getting divorced, and we still love you, and everything is going to be fine. You know, But in the child's little mind, Mommy is half of who I am. Daddy is half of who I am. Yeah. What do you mean you love me, but you don't love the other half of yeah. who I am? What, what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're literally being torn apart. Yes, yeah. yes. And um, it's just, it's maddening to me how often people in the professions and people in the social sciences and so on, people in the managerial class, what I would call the managerial professional yes, classes, yes. Um, that class of people... They perpetuate the sexual revolutionary ideology, but once they get to a certain point in their lives, they don't live it anymore. People in the professional classes get married and stay married. Now, they're about 10 years later than Ozzie and Harriet would have done it, Mm -hmm. but they look like Ozzie and Harriet once Mm -hmm. they get down to it. Meanwhile, they're putting out information and pamphlets and studies and saying it doesn't matter, have as many sex partners as you want, just use a condom so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. They are not living what they are teaching because they could not they could not achieve their aspirations for their children if they were mixing up their partners all the time. And, and, and you, you could not get your you you can't get your kid into Harvard 
yeah. <laughs> those circumstances, right? I mean, you can, but it's not as likely. And they're not stupid. They know it, you know. And and, so. and speaking of the managerial class, it was interesting to, to see you write in the, uh, in the book, The Sexual State, that they, the, manage, the so-called managerial class, uh, and maybe you could explain a little bit more of what that is, but they... They benefit, and the state itself benefits from gender ideology. Yes, yes. So now we're getting into the whole part of the sexual state, and I want to just mention to your readers and to your listeners, to your listeners and my future readers, hopefully, mm-hmm. I hope yes. everyone will buy the book. I wrote this book in 2018, so the term the deep state was not really uh, in common usage, mm. okay? Mm-hmm. Um and the idea of a global ruling class was not as clear in people's minds as mm-hmm. it is or might be today, yeah. right? Because we now know what those people are capable of, okay? But um, anyway, so what's in the, what you'll find in the book is, is an analysis of the fact that if you look at each one of these three ideologies, each one of them was imposed by the state mm-hmm. against the wishes of ordinary people, okay? So no-fault divorce came about from lawyers, basically. And um, ordinary people didn't know what hit them. You know, I mean, there was no public discussion of it. Um, just all of a sudden, one day, one party could leave the marriage for any reason or no reason. Boom. You know, all of a sudden, all the rules are changed. And who benefits from that? Well, there's a whole class of people that you could call the divorce industry. Mm-hmm. The, the, the family lawyers, the, the yeah. family law attorneys who make money off of it. The whole army of people who do psychological testing, yep. who do financial analysis. And what are they doing? They are functionaries of the state who are invading the home. Yeah, they, right. they get to know how much money you have, what you're spending it on. They get to control uh, how much time you could spend with your own child. The people who are having their lives upended are not criminals. They haven't done anything wrong, but they, have, they are subject to all of this oversight. Yeah, by functionaries yeah. of the state who are completely unaccountable, completely unaccountable. So um, that's the most obvious one. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the contraceptive ideology, you can see that being implemented by the state in a couple of ways. The most obvious being the Supreme Court decisions that overturned state level laws and made and disconnected sex from babies, right. both through the Griswold versus right. Connecticut yep. case, yep. and then also Roe versus Wade, yep. obviously, famously. Right. Um, and to this day, you can see the ruling class in a panic over anything that disrupts this contraceptive ideology. So, you know, Texas, you would think that women were dropping like flies in Texas because they can't have abortions. <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, it's it's so irrational. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it defies explanation, but... One of the things I want to point out about that is some of the things that pro-lifers have to put up with and have put up with for years, you can see that it's the state. You can see that it would never get going if the Planned Parenthood people and the abortion industry and the uh, professional ideologues, if they didn't have control of the state, there are certain things that would never happen. First of all, David Daleiden would not be facing criminal charges and financial ruin. For mm-hmm. exposing people in the commission of felonies. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, selling baby parts. Selling baby parts, okay. <laughs> so he, and he's the one that's in trouble for exposing he's that. He's the one that's in trouble in multiple jurisdictions. In Texas, at least that I know of, in California and in Texas, 
he has lawsuits against him. Okay, yeah. and and on our we have a video podcast program called the Doctor J Show where I interview various people. I have interviewed Delighton's lawyers. Oh, really? And hmm. they will tell you in no uncertain terms some of the heavy-handed prejudicial rulings rulings that they received from the bench. Evidence that's not allowed to be used. Uh, judges who should have recused themselves, who, who don't recuse themselves. So you can see the things being held in place by the use of the state. The crisis pregnancy centers. I'll bet you in Massachusetts you've got a push to regulate crisis pregnancy centers and to make oh, yeah. their lives more difficult. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, now, fortunately, the Supreme Court knocked down the most egregious of that kind of stuff. But But the point is, Look at it like I do, like an economist, okay? Here you've got two alternative uh, professions to help people deal with unplanned pregnancies. You've got somebody who will help you abort the baby, yeah. and you've got somebody who gets money for it, and you've got somebody that is a volunteer organization that will help you carry your child to term. Yeah, the competition. Okay? <laughs> competition. we got to do something about yeah. these little old ladies with diapers, okay? Yeah. We just can't have that. They're yeah. cutting into our business. Yeah. And they get the state to help them. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, one, um, I, I wanted to, uh, since since I'm a doctor, I like to, I like prescriptions. And uh, <laughs> I, I liked your, Uh-oh. I liked your prescription at the end of the book, the, the, the 15 point manifesto about how to fix all this. But bef- yeah. before we end with that, I wanted to get you to tell one more story okay. that relates to uh, physician assisted suicide, which is a, oh. which is a big interest of mine right now because we're constantly fighting that in in massachusetts and and across the country yes and when i read your story about nancy uh verhelst i think her name was oh and and that tragedy could you just uh spend a minute talking about that story oh yes 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 this is um this is an article i wrote a few years ago i can't even remember when this took place there was there was a woman in belgium who had a sex change operation there and her original name was Nancy. Mm-hmm. She had a sex change operation and was then known as Nathan. Mm, right. And the headlines, the headline about her that I read was, uh, let's see, how did it go? Um, Belgian commits suicide over botched transgender surgery, mm. something like that. And, and it was Belgian. It was not, man or woman you know they wouldn't identify man or woman um when you read the story what you found out was that nancy verhelst's mother always wanted a boy Mm. and hated her as a girl and that is why she changed her sex you know i mean it was pretty transparent that that's why she changed her sex and when you read the story there was nothing botched about the surgery they cut her breasts off just fine um Mm. uh, you know there was nothing and they gave her the hormones and all that stuff there was Mm -hmm. nothing botched about it it's just that she hated it she hated the way she looked she felt like a freak and of course it didn't solve her problem of her mother not loving her Right. I mean, yeah. it couldn't possibly solve the problem of her mother not loving right. her. Right. And so this, you know, I, I recounted that, you know, by way of saying that it isn't unusual that when somebody is experiencing a desire to change their body, for goodness sake, there's something else going on. Yeah. There. Yeah. And if we don't, if we never take the time to look at what's going on, this is what we're going to have. You know, we're going to have people committing suicide because it didn't work the way they expected. Yeah. But we we should never be encouraging people down this path in the first place. Right. And the state 
let her do it, right? They, they yeah. She said, I want to kill myself. She didn't have a terminal disease. She right. And Belgium has uh, progressed, if you want to use that word, to the point where you don't need a terminal disease. You you just need to be miserable and want to kill yourself. So this, right. this the state destroyed this this poor girl with all yeah. of the you know with all of their legal uh, changes with the allowing sex change operation and then allowing her to kill herself so yeah the culture is very messed up which gets to the final uh, few minutes we have and just if you could say uh, a word or two about the 15 point manifesto at the end of yeah. your book. So point number yeah. one that you said needs to happen to change all this is end sex education in the public schools. Yep. And the reason I'm so adamant about that is that it is simply propaganda for the sexual state. That is all it is. It is a propaganda operation. And I know people you know, who are trying to get better sex ed in the schools and so on and so forth. And I say, no, don't even do that. Yeah, don't you even go there. You need to get rid of it. You need to get rid of it. The, the idea, see, the, the idea itself is flawed. The idea that you can, um, that, that it's a good thing for children to learn about sex in a room full of strangers uh, and other kids, you know, that, that, that it's better for them to be taught by a stranger than by their own parents. Yeah, um, this is an idea that we should resist. It's absurd. And I think that's more obvious today than it was when I wrote those words. Yeah. Because the, the, the pressure on parents and, the, and the, the pressure in all these areas has just only gotten worse since, yeah, I, we're, since we're, I wrote those. But yeah, the, the yeah. overall point I want to make about, um, about my manifesto there, Mark, yeah. is that of the 15 points, it's a 15-point manifesto, the first 10 are all things that the state needs to stop doing. That's what I want to say. So a lot of people have libertarian friends or libertarian-leaning friends who want to say, oh, let's just get the state out of this business, uh, uh, less government, uh, you guys are just trying to impose your morality on people, so on and so forth. What I want to say is the state has already been doing things very aggressively that it should never have been doing in the first place. And so the first order of business is to make the state stop. Yeah. Yeah. Doing what it's doing. And I'll just uh, quickly read through the things you want them to stop. I, uh, I don't want to take too much of your time. Um, but um, you also write down abolish taxpayer-funded women's studies and gender study programs in college and universities, reform divorce laws, uh, remove the marriage tax uh, from uh, all welfare programs, Cease governmental promotion and, subs and subsidization of contraception. Abolish abortion. Restore an unapologetic gender requirement to marriage. End all government funding for population control in foreign countries. That is particularly egregious, yeah. if I may say. It is horrible what our government is doing. Sorry, continue. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> you know, pr promoting our own corrupt ideology. All over the world. Yeah. Abolish the third-party reproduction industry, and I am wholeheartedly in favor of that. I've I've seen the fallout of yeah. of, um, of treating children like they're commodities. Yeah. Um, making legal provision for the adoption of all frozen embryos, and um, that's actually a little bit controversial. The church, Catholic Church, hasn't come down one way or the other on. I know. On doing I know. that. 
it's it's just so horrible to think of these frozen human beings uh, all over the country. And but but if you notice, the next thing I say there is, and make sure that there are no further children are ever frozen again. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And then the last five here that that are things that government should do: tax pornography, or and somehow regulate it. Adopt a family impact analysis, which I thought was a really good idea. In other words, you're saying if you're going to make a law, just like we do environmental analysis, yep. uh, if you're going to make a law, do a family analysis. Because as the family goes, so goes the culture. We care about the environment. But we should care more about the, uh, the family environment. Yep. Uh, create social forms of encouragement for a long-lasting love in the family. Create social st- structures to support people who fall between the cracks or who have fallen short of the ideals of lifelong married love. And finally, overall, uh, as St. Paul said, put on love. So I will um, leave all of that unexplained as an extra incentive for people to buy the book. (laughs) And I will tell you, if you buy it directly from us at the Ruth Institute, I mean, you can buy it from TAN Publishers. Don't buy it from Amazon. Jesus <laughs> yeah. does not need your money, okay? Yeah. But you could buy it directly from TAN Publishers, or if you buy it from us at the Ruth Institute, um, it will be autographed for you well, by nice. me. And nice. I will also stick into the book a copy of a pamphlet describing the uh, the manifesto for the family that uh, we've made, we've turned that into oh. a that we give it whether we give out at conferences and things like that. Well, um, so I'm going to have to buy another book then. I'm going to have to buy another copy so I can so I can get that myself. <laughs> Good idea. Good thinking, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been this has been uh, terrific, and thanks for your generous uh, use of your time. And I wondered if you had any uh, closing remarks you'd like to make. Well, no, just I, I, I'm grateful for, for your time, uh, Mark. I'm grateful that you found me. I'm grateful that you invited me to be on your show, and I, I look forward to meeting your listeners online. Yes, yes. Well, thank you again, and um, maybe sometime in the future we can talk because there's lots and lots to talk about. So That's for sure. Thanks once again. Thank you. This concludes Part 3 of my conversation with Dr. Jennifer Roback morse Please visit her website at ruthinstitute.org. Her website has some very valuable information, and you can purchase her book, The Sexual State, How Elite Ideologies Are Destroying Lives and Why the Church Was Right All Along. And until next time, remember, we should always treat life with care and respect, and at the very least, we should first do no harm. First do no harm with Dr. Mark Rollo is produced at WQPH 89.3 FM, Shirley Richburg. We are very happy to share it with other networks. Thank you for tuning in to First Do No Harm. Dr. Rollo welcomes your questions and comments. You may contact him at markrollo978 at gmail.com. That's M-A-R-K-R-O-L-L-O 978 at gmail.com. 
Thank you, and until next week, remember, first, do no harm.